Welcome to Copyright Clearance in his podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Beyond the Book. It's Friday, March 29th, 2019. Our weekly guest on the show is Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly Senior Writer, who joins me today from the magazine's office in New York City. Welcome back, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. So this week, Andrew, Penguin Random House reported its fiscal year 2018 full year earnings, the last of the big five publishers to do so. And no surprise, the publishers of Michelle Obama enjoyed a pretty good year. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's right. You know, Penguin Random House's parent company, Bertelsmann, was the last of the major trade publishers to report results for 2018. And as you would expect, the results were pretty good. Uh, revenue at Penguin Random House rose just under 2 percent, about 1.9 in 2018. Uh, that's over 2017. Earnings increased 1.3 percent. Total revenue came in at 3.87 billion at current exchange rates. And in a letter to employees, CEO Marcus Dolis said the first two months of 2019 have already put the company on a growth trajectory for the year. Now, I hope that's true, but I have to say I'm a little skeptical of that. But then again, I never want to doubt Marcus Tolle. All right. So you say, though, you're a skeptic, and that would be because you don't see another blockbuster like becoming in the PRH pipeline? Well, yes and no, because you know there still is Michelle Obama in the pipeline, right? You know she sold three million hardcovers in 2018, despite not coming out uh, until November. Uh, but that book is still hovering on the bestseller list, uh, right near the top. And eventually, there's going to be a paperback, which has not yet been announced, and which I don't expect to come out in 2019, given that sales of the hardcover are still going strong. Uh, and more than Michelle Obama, the company has an even bigger author on the list. Dr. Seuss, who Marcus Dole in his letter said uh, the company sold 11 million copies of Dr. Seuss books last year. But you know, I'm a little skeptical of them having a better 2019 just because, you know, there's the campaign season, for example, it's about to kick in. Uh, and I do wonder where people's attention is going to be after the summer of this year. And, you know, there's still signs that fiction is struggling as well. And while the economy has been fairly robust, uh, the, the economic numbers suggest to me that, you know, we may be in for a bit of a cooling down. Let, let's hope not. Uh, you know, all that said, there's no question that Penguin Random House has been a strong performer. And if anyone is going to outperform the market, it probably would be them. So with all of the majors now reporting, your editor, Jim Milliot, is taking stock in Monday's Publishers Weekly of how 2018 measured up for the majors. Was it as good a year for everyone as for PRH? Yeah, uh, almost for everyone. In fact, profits at four of the five major trade publishers in 2018 were up. Uh, one company's earnings were down. That's Lagardere Publishing, but their profits actually increased in its U.S. subsidiary, which is the Hachette Book Group. Uh, and at the risk of sounding repetitive on this on this podcast, strong sales of digital audio were cited by four of the five publishers as being key revenue drivers in the year. Uh, even though ebook sales have gone down, digital revenues are up, powered by audio. Uh, so looking at each of these publishers, HarperCollins actually had the best overall performance among the big five publishers. They had a fairly strong gain in profits. They jumped 33.7% in 2018 over 2017. They were helped along by a $28 million licensing deal for the Tolkien properties. And, you know, you have to love those backlist licenses licensing deals, right? Because most of that just falls right to the bottom line. Uh, but Harper also had two books by Joanna Gaines, Magnolia Table and Homebody, both of which were big sellers. And say it with me now, 
strong growth in digital audio, uh, really powerful double-digit growth in digital audio, also boosted uh, HarperCollins. Uh, I mentioned Lagardere briefly before. We should point out the earnings at Hachette were up 3.7% over 2017. Uh, that's pretty strong result, I would say. And overall earnings decline for Lagardere was primarily due to uh, a sharp fall in education in France and UK and Spain. But the, in the US, uh, Hachette had a really good year. Uh, Simon & Schuster, meanwhile, uh, reported operating income rose about almost 6%, uh, despite a slight decline in revenue. And at this point, I'll remind you that Simon & Schuster had a monster 2017 to go up against with its 2018 numbers. And Chris, you'll never guess what Simon & Schuster's fastest growing segment was. Well, you know, I I might just guess. In fact, I will guess. Was it by any chance digital audio? (laughs) Correct. Good guess. Uh, Audio growth, again, well into double digits, said uh, Simon & Schuster CEO Carolyn Reedy. Uh, But one factor did hurt overall sales for 2018 for SNS uh, and led to a soft fourth quarter. And that is something we've talked about on the show in the past, the lack of printing capacity. Uh, That was actually a concern for all of the publishers late in last year. So, you know, with that, I'm going to stop. You can check out Monday's issue for more numbers, including uh, a look in Jim Millia's piece about how some of the mini majors did, like Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Uh, but I'm just going to end this segment with two little words, digital audio. Uh, digital audio just made a huge difference to everyone's bottom line in 2018. And uh, as I heard at the London Book Fair in numerous panels, I expect the growth in that format is going to continue throughout 2019. When CCC's Beyond the Book returns, Andrew Albanese tells us what a vote in Strasbourg and an appointment in Washington have in common. I'm Christopher Keneally. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly and host of the new PW podcast, Publishers Weekly Insider. Each week, we'll talk to PW editors, authors, and other industry guests about the biggest and most exciting stories and books in the world of publishing. New episodes of PW Insider premiere every Friday. So listen at publishersweekly.com slash PW Insider or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to subscribe to PW Insider on iTunes. I'm Christopher Keneally for CCC's Beyond the Book. It's Friday, March 29th, 2019, and Andrew Albanese of Publishers Weekly joins me today as he does each week with news and analysis from the world of publishing. And Andrew, we have plenty of news from around the world this week related to copyright legislation, starting in Strasbourg, France, where the European Parliament has voted in favor of a sweeping, somewhat controversial copyright reform package. That's right. I I would say it's fair to say that the world's copyright access shifted a bit this week uh, after the European Parliament voted by a pretty good margin, 348 to 278, to approve a final version of the Directive on Copyright in the Digital Single Market, uh, including two controversial provisions that were left intact. That's Article 11, which would require web aggregators like Google News to negotiate with media companies for sharing snippets of their work, and Article 13, which observers say will compel web platforms hosting user-generated content to filter uploads for intellectual property violations. 
The bill now will get a vote before the European Council, which I'm told is a mere formality at this point. And I don't think there's any real chance that the council is going to shoot the bill down at this stage, barring a massive surprise. And then as a directive, not a regulation, each member state will have to transpose. That is basically rewrite their national copyright laws over the next two years to comply with the directive. And given how much opposition there was to the bill among the public, uh, that could be a, a source of drama somewhat. So we'll be paying attention there as the EU member states open the books on their copyright laws. After years of wrangling and delays over the directive, Andrew, what's been the reaction to this week's vote? Frankly, it's been rather subdued, I have to say. And I think that's because people understood that this would probably pass. So it's really not surprised anyone. Uh, I think reaction, it's fair to say, has fallen along industry lines, as you'd expect, with publishers and media companies celebrating the bill. Uh, Rudy von Schoenbeek, who's the president of the Federation of European Publishers, praised the vote's outcome, for example, but conceded that the directive was, and I'll quote him here, the most hotly contested I've ever seen. Uh, the tech companies and the library communities that opposed the bill were still sounding the alarm, but they were a little more balanced this week, a little more measured in their reaction. IFLA, for example, said some parts of the reform bill were positive, including a section on data mining, but also reiterated concerns that parts of the bill, specifically Article 13, risk undermining fundamental freedoms online. Notably, an amendment to strip Article 13 from the final bill failed by just five votes. And in another statement, the Wikimedia Foundation also expressed disappointment, but also found some positives in the directive, including a new safeguard for the public domain and a provision that could allow libraries to provide digital access to out-of-commerce works that have not yet fallen into the public domain. Uh, and Wikimedia pointed to the next steps. That is, that there was an opportunity here for Europeans to proactively engage with policymakers and, in their words, to ensure that national copyright protects Internet freedom and empowers everyone to participate in knowledge. Now, personally, I'm left, I'm left with two big questions following the vote. The first is whether EU reps up for re-election in May or are going to see any fallout from the vote, as promised by opponents. And my guess is that they probably won't because the bill's provisions won't be felt for some time. But it's worth pointing out that this bill was genuinely unpopular with voters, as evidenced by the tens of thousands of people who marched in the streets last weekend. And while supporters of the bill shrugged them off as like shills for big tech, I think they'd be wise to listen and pay attention over the coming years as this directive is implemented. Uh, and one other point I should make, and that's that the final bill, in the final bill, excuse me, Article 11 and Article 13 were moved. They're now Article 15 and Article 17. And that makes absolutely no difference in terms of their effect. However, the protesters are going to have to make new signs. <laughs> but in all seriousness, it really could affect the messaging. I mean, for years, we've been talking about Article 13 and Article 13 and Article 11, and now they've changed. So these things can make a difference. Well, in fact, as you say, however you count the articles, you don't see much chance the issue itself will be a factor in the upcoming European parliamentary elections. What is the second question for you, though? Yeah, the second question is, will this European effort embolden stakeholders and legislators in the U.S. to try something similar? You know, the fiasco the, that was SOPA, which flamed out in 2012, is still fresh in a lot of people's minds. But to put it mildly, a lot has changed since 2011 and 2012 not only politically, but in the marketplace, you know, it's possible the European effort will take a little bit of the, the, the bad 
taste off of SOPA, uh, maybe enough for lawmakers to try again. But then again, sure seems like Jerry Nadler and others on the House Judiciary Committee have some other things that they're going to be concerned with over the next two years. So if any change should come to U.S. law, a new register of copyrights will be in Washington to oversee it. Because this week, Librarian of Congress Carla Hayden announced she has officially appointed Karen Temple to the post. That's right. And congratulations to Karen Temple, who, after doing the job for two and a half years, is now officially the 13th United States Register of Copyrights. And we should note the first person of color to hold the position. Now, I don't know the register, but I do know that she has garnered some very, very positive reviews since taking the helm in October of 2016. Uh, That's from legislators, from a range of stakeholders in the copyright realm, and from Carla Hayden herself. Uh, And the timing of the appointment makes sense, too, considering that a major piece of copyright reform for the digital age the Music Modernization Act, signed into law last year, is really going to require intense effort to implement and administer. Uh, but you know where I'm going with this, right? <laughs> you know, I also hope that this appointment finally puts to bed what had become a fraught and, frankly, silly political battle over the Register of Copyrights position. Now, our listeners will remember that Carla Hayden's sudden removal of Maria Polante in 2016 caused a bit of hysteria within the content industries, where Polante was seen as a pretty strong ally, uh, the theory being that Hayden was anti-copyright and a Google shill. And frankly, that was never really true. That was always BS, in fact. But that led to a bill, uh, the Register of Copyright Selection and Accountability Act, which proposed to take the Register of Copyright's position out of the purview of the Librarian of Congress, something Palante, not coincidentally, had advocated for during her time as Register. And while supporters insisted that that bill was necessary to help modernize the Copyright Office, the bill's opponents correctly pointed out that it was little more than a thinly veiled effort to block the supposedly anti-copyright Hayden from making a permanent appointment to replace Palante. Well, after being rushed through the House in a matter of weeks in 2017, that bill died last year after it failed to advance in the Senate. And I hope it's gone for good. I mean, if Congress wants to move the Copyright Office from out of the library, that's perfectly okay. They're free to do so. Might be a good thing. But that's never really what this register bill was about. That bill was really about fear of who Carla Hayden was going to appoint. And I think we're past that. I think we have to be past that. Now, Temple's appointment was not unexpected in copyright circles, and a Library of Congress oversight hearing before the Senate Committee on Rules and Administration on March 6th, uh, which, yes, I watched because that's just who I am, kind of fueled speculation that Temple might be given the appointment. And you can check out that hearing online. You can check in around the 41-minute mark for this piece that I'm about to tell you about. But Hayden really praised the work done by Temple at the Copyright Office, twice making the point to the committee about how difficult it was to do such work in an acting capacity. And then Temple is invited to address the committee, and she had a lot of good things to say. But Roy Blunt, who's the chairman, he's Republican from Missouri, uh, offered a really telling remark before Temple spoke. He said, we thought at one time there was potential for even more independence and direction in the choice of the register, but certainly all reports have been that Dr. Hayden's choice was a really good one. Hayden's choice was a really good one. Uh, In an acting capacity, Karen Temple has done yeoman's work in modernizing the copyright office the last two years. I think everybody's been very impressed with what she's done. Hayden's choice was a really good one. I think those words should finally put to rest this idea that there's an inherent conflict in having a library, the Library of Congress, oversee an agency that administers copyright, especially when the alternative being offered was basically going to hand copyright over to industry. So I hope with Karen Temple's permanent appointment and all the great work she's done so far that we can finally put turf force behind us and really focus on the issues at hand because there certainly are a lot of them.
And if peace or war should ever break out over copyright, Andrew, we will count on you to report from the front lines for us. Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly Senior Writer, thanks for joining me today and every Friday on Beyond the Book. My pleasure, as always. Coming next on Beyond the Book, books are the children of the brain, said Jonathan Swift. And judging by the profusion of published works and the hundreds of stalls all over London Book Fair earlier this month, our brains don't get very much sleep. Parents expect the unexpected to happen, and so should publishers of their children. In London, three publishing executives with considerable licensing experience shared with me the keys to finding value locked in existing content and how to be ready to respond when the unexpected does happen. Jim Colbert, with Highlights for Children, explained why location matters. What's interesting is what we learned is, in depending on the country, the content some of our partners might want to make changes to the content, or they might not. So as an example, in China, which is a very large market for us, um, not only is, is, is our content licensed very heavily for English language learning, but what we learned is that it's very important um, for schools to teach their students about American culture. And so as a result, they make no changes to the content at all. So they want the content as is. And if you read highlights, you'll very quickly notice that the scenes could only be from the United States, generally. On the other hand, in other countries, they like the content, but they wanted to make changes to it, so it might be more neutral. It might be less clear exactly where it's from. And, and we're very flexible in that. We realized to work in other countries, that was something important to do. Your content, children, may surprise you. Next on Beyond the Book. Beyond the Book is produced by Copyright Clearance Center. Our co-producer and recording engineer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. Subscribe to the program wherever you go for podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook. The complete Beyond the Book podcast archive is available at beyondthebook.com. I'm Christopher Keneally. Thanks for listening and join us again soon on CCC's Beyond the Book. Thank you.